Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. We made it. It's Election Day, Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. Uh, our long national nightmare is over. And then, of course, we'll begin the minute that we, the, the minute, like five o'clock tomorrow morning, when we just start talking about Trump versus Biden or whoever. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me is always executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist at American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, one of our favorites, uh, commentary magazine contributing editor, host of the Reeducation podcast. I strongly urge you to listen to this week's Reeducation podcast, uh, which is about the Israeli elections, though its host is maybe a little too, you know, squishy for me on, on the elections. Uh <laughs> It's a fantastic, like short, pricey history of 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 Israel in like fifteen minutes. It's great, Eli Lake. Welcome. Thank back. you so much. And um, the latest episode is my case for divided government before the midterms. Oh, okay, so, that's the latest. So last week's was the yeah last week's. So okay. Friday, yeah. Well, Eli, your case is about to come true by all by yeah. all reckoning. So let's just let's just update people on where we are today. So mysteriously, this morning, after um, a week in which the 538 deluxe probabilistic finding of the poll of polls combined with the fundamentals combined with a secret sauce, you didn't know was sitting at Republicans having a 55% chance to control the Senate. And it just sat there and nothing moved, even though all the polling last week of any moment moved things toward the Republicans, except for the NBC News and ABC News final polls, which had the generic ballot. That's the, would you vote for Republican or Democrat? Almost even. But every, if you look at the, one of these list of polls like the red is like overwhelming in who's who's winning but it sat there at 55 but 59 ta-da 59 out of nowhere i don't know how it happened nothing really was different at three o'clock in the morning from like 11 o'clock last night but here we are they is now favoring republicans to take over the senate and of course overwhelmingly the republicans will take over the house uh Eli, I, I want to start with you because you, uh, as I've talked about before, developed a character who appeared on the <laughs> uh, late lamented um, uh, Washington Free Beacon podcast. Yes. Uh, 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 Leonard Pondriver, uh, the, the uh, chairman of the David Gergen what Institute for Excellence in um, Moderation. <laughs> Yes. So uh, Eli uh, would come on as uh, as as Dr. Pondriver to lament our divided politics and our polarization and wonder, is there a way for us looking for bipartisan solutions? Right. Yes. Bipartisan solutions. So, Eli, put on your Dr. Leonard Pondriver <laughs> hat. And let me just ask you this question. Um, is there any person not of the conservative persuasion or like leaning right uh, in the common political conversation, meaning sort of like center, what we consider center to the far left, that does not believe that a Republican victory in the House and Senate in the gubernatorial races tonight does not believe 
that we are seeing a fundamental threat to democracy? Or is this now just axiomatic? Like this election, if 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 Democrats don't pull it out somehow out of their ass. Okay. So if I was being if yeah. I was if I was in the is in the kind of caricature parody mode. I would I would a Dr. Leonard Pondriver would say, listen, the person we need to watch right now is Kamala Harris, who has shown such great political skill and has really carved out this unique place in American politics as somebody who has opposed, um, you know, excessive policing at the local level, but is very enthusiastic about national policing at the FBI level. And, you know, Kamala Harris is going to save us because let's be honest, I've it's possible that Joe Biden may have lost his fastball a little bit he's not altogether there but you know kamala continues that's why she gets all these great responsibilities that's a classic like leonard bond driver thing like praising like a kamala harris type who's obviously so terrible that i mean you've i don't know if you remember that george will column he said i want i don't just want biden to i I want kamala to announce she's not running either you know i mean I th- I have to think that there is like got to be some part of the party that it's like you are leading us to ruin with the, um you know, sort of forcing us all to tote this line about democracy being on the ballot. It's not. um And we're going to look again like the party that cried wolf. And so I'm I mean, I'm assuming that like there are people who are not as close to the sort of nerve center. That are saying that, but they had so much message discipline. I mean, I when I was doing my research for my own podcast for my monologue, I just was going through it. Everybody, Chris Hayes, even Bill Maher, who is heterodox, everybody was on the same talking points. I know it's bad. Inflation's bad. I get it. You don't like crime. And I, there's a lot I don't like either, but you got to vote for the Democrats because the alternative is the end of democracy. And it's like, who I can't put. Nobody's buying it anymore. And I think that's I was a huge mistake. I think I think there's a if I was I'm I'm resentful. I think there's got to be a lot of voters who are resentful as well. Can no, I say something about I, why, why it's a huge mistake? I've been thinking about this for the past couple of days. There are so many Americans uh, and I think so many conservatives, certainly um, uh, Republican uh, Democrats and liberals who don't believe <clears throat> that uh, Republicans represent a threat to democracy, but who nevertheless are absolutely not interested in rewarding any candidates who rejected the uh, 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 results of the 2020 election. There are people who are disgusted with all of that, all the rhetoric behind it, the movement behind it, who still are sober enough not to see it as a threat to democracy or the republic itself it has been very easy it would have been very easy to appeal to those people without overstating the case right and And they did overstate the case and the case that they're stating is literally this is the last time you're going to get to vote can't tell you how many times i've heard that this is the last election literally like no one believes that if only in part because even authoritarians like the the tribute vice pays to virtue hold sham elections just so they could have the appearance of the legitimacy that an election bestows. Elections aren't going away. It's the integrity thereof. And they don't make that case narrowly, in part because it just hasn't jazzed the right people enough, right? So they're they're just upping the ante and in, engaged in a bidding war with themselves that has undermined their own case. Well, okay, and when they are to give you a 20 year, I just want to quickly think before I forget a 20 an anecdote from 2003. I was on a panel at the American Bar Association in New York. 
uh, on politics. And it was me and Floyd Abrams, the constitutional lawyer, and Helen, uh, not Helen, and Kevin Buckley, who was a longtime liberal leftist or foreign correspondent type uh, who worked at The Nation. He was, by this point, very old. And uh, Kevin Buckley said, I just want to say, 2003, I just want to say, you know, people that I talk to, some of our conversations involve, you know, um, some people think that uh, George W. Bush is going to uh, use the Iraq war and the terror and the terror threat or the so-called terror threat to cancel the 2004 elections. And I'm not saying that it's going to happen. I'm just saying that people are talking about it. So that was 20 years ago. This bullshit has been in the democratic consciousness long before January 6th, long before Trump said he wouldn't accept the results of the election in 2004 on the night of the election, which hinged on, on Ohio, right? Uh, Bush was pushed over the top by Ohio. If Kerry had won Ohio, Kerry would have won the election. He did not concede on election night because he was waiting for, he was hoping for some miracle in Ohio. And Christopher Hitchens of sainted memory that everybody thinks so wonderful. Christopher Hitchens came up with a whole complicated conspiracy theory because he was at Kenyon College in a town of 1,500 people in Gambier, Ohio, and three people didn't get to vote because the polling place closed after he was like, you know, had his 97th drink at the local Irish pub. And so this clearly proved that Ohio was stolen from Kerry. That was 18 years ago. So the threats to democracy stuff come from, in some ways, the people who say there are threats to democracy. This okay, has can been I, can I, can I steal? Can I okay. steal? Can, let me steal, man. It. I mean, I'm agreeing with you, John. But let me steal, man. The specific argument this time is, in 2022 on the ballot, there are a significant number of Republicans who are not only, you know, what the Democrats call. 2020 election deniers, which is offensive, by the way, to the memory of the show up. But let's move on. OK, <laughs> but they are specifically running for positions like secretary of state, and they will be in positions if Doug Mastriano wins, which it looks like he will not in Pennsylvania. This is somebody who is not just crazy and, you know, total super Trumpist, but he's somebody who um you know, will not be credible if he is the governor of Pennsylvania to reliably count and then transmit the electoral college votes in the next presidential election. And that's I, the argument, I, which I, is that I, there are enough I, of these Republicans who would muck up the counting of the votes in 2024, that it will create a constitutional crisis. And that if Trump is on the ballot again, he will not concede the election and we will have something far worse even than January uh, 6th. Okay. That's the steel I, I, man. I do not. I, I am not saying that there are no threats to democracy. I'm okay. saying they say there are threats to democracy every time. True. Politics seems to be trending away from them. But can I, can but, I add yeah, one? I just want to add one other theme here because I think it's, it, it's a difference between some of these earlier claims about democracy being in peril and it's more insidious because it has a longer uh, likely reach. If it's, if, if, 
particularly the Democrats who are arguing this are successful. What we've seen alongside the apocalyptic rhetoric in the last few weeks, which is obviously intended to, to spark fear and anxiety and get people to the polls to vote, is something else, which is laying the groundwork for a new kind of, um, I don't know, rationale uh, for why people didn't vote for Democrats, particularly people like, say, African-Americans who generally turn out in strong numbers for, for Democrats. And you've seen in the last couple of days, Keisha Lance Bottoms, former mayor uh, of Atlanta, who advises the Biden campaign, and uh, Stacey Abrams, both saying that African-American men have been targeted with misinformation. Now, they just blurted this out on some cable news show. And I was like, wait a minute. And it's very clear if you start looking at all of these claims about misinformation about this midterm election in particular, there's a real effort to use it the way the old left used to use the idea of false consciousness, right? It's these people are so you know easily swayed and easily persuaded by false information that they're actually it undermines their the integrity of their ability to vote. I find that hugely condescending, just as I always found false consciousness arguments condescending. But but the, there's a solution, I think, that they foresee if this is an argument that that lands with a lot of people. And that's some sort of censorship, some sort of, you know, government control of how information flows, particularly on social media. So there is a real concern I have about that long term, not well beyond this election and the next one. By the way, along these lines, I just want to say the left is constantly saying do the work, which is read these books that I like. So I think our side needs to start saying, you know, um, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Stacey Abrams, you need to do the work and read Robert Conquest about the history of the Soviet Union <laughs> because they obviously haven't done the work because they sound exactly like the commissars. Am I wrong? That's exactly what the Soviets said. They said we the nomenclatura existed because they did not trust the average the proles are too stupid to know their exactly. own Exactly, the proles are too dumb and that we have access to special knowledge and therefore we we have, we are the special class that is protecting the nation. They sound exactly like that. They are the new nomenclatura. It was a funny... I mean, John, that's your field. Like, and Noah, you guys both studied this stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, quite a bit. And to the degree that I'll always jump on it whenever I see it. I saw something very similar from a similar observation and just a, like a pithy aside from John Chait yesterday making this similar observation quote i just think kerensky's government just has made a lot of mistakes and if we want to protect democracy he should have shared power with the bolsheviks the suggestion being here that republicans are a revolutionary cabal that don't respect tradition and government and only want to secure power and that this provisional government that was in place after the february revolution and the siege of the winter palace should have just been more accommodating to these terrorists um, in, in reality, should have just been you know more aggressive, right? Well, actually, following the Kornilov affair, which is an attempted mo monarchist push, putsch, um, Kerensky had to rely on the Petrograd Soviet for support, which included a lot of Bolsheviks. He fired a whole bunch of generals, and their arrest and their frustration over that led them to support the storm, the uh, October Revolution. So that's exactly kind of what happened. I know this is entirely Jonathan, un this has no pertinence that Jonathan whatsoever. Jonathan was vulgar. Jonathan Chait made a vulgar, crass, ahistorical point. Yeah, something along those lines. Stupid ass. But it was totally point. irrelevant. So I decided to throw in another non sequitur that was that was also impertinent. Uh, so just you know, just to capitalize on the opportunity to talk about the revolution because we don't get a lot of those opportunities anymore. Uh, so Jonathan Chait, not not notwithstanding. Um, aside from uh, the black men are being targeted with misinformation because apparently uh, these black women think that they're too stupid, um, came uh, Biden's st stunning moment yesterday 
in which he told students at a historically black college and university that they're just as smart as everybody else. So I, <laughs> he's done I this before. A, this is like a theme with him. It's horrible. They're just as smart as everybody else. And I watched it. I'm but what like, was? Oh, it was the crime. When thing is he, he going to say he's not running again? This man <laughs> cannot run for president again. I am sorry. This Can follows stop- an observation yeah. that he he was he was asked, "What did you do for the African American community?" And the first thing he, that came to his mind was expunge your convictions for marijuana possession. Like between these two things, the the covert racism detectors who can dis- discern racist intent in the word "constitution," "apartment," and "Chicago" just can't see the malign influences that are leading Joe Biden to make these rather crass observations about black people. And it is coming at a time when, as we talked about yesterday with Steve Kornacki, a lot of African-Americans, probably more men than women, are openly gravitating towards the Republican Party. Not, you know, not 25%, but 20%, one in five is a lot of a lot of votes. Um, okay, so Noah, you you wanted to change the term. We've been the last two weeks talking about precriminations. That is, as things are going the Republicans' way, or seem to be going the Republicans' way, the Democrats were be, were already trying to come up with who to blame for for their meltdown. Or you know, I'm not sure by the way anybody is to blame. Here's the interesting thing: someone ca- added up. I think it's a billion six was spent on this election cycle. billion nationally, either that or 16 billion. I can't even remember correctly. It's that number, 10 times that number, something like that. And in the end, we have a fundamentals election, probably. That's what's staring us in the face. That is what's going to happen tonight is the result of inflation, uh, crime, (laughs) uh, presidential disapproval, and uh, how people think the direction of the country is. It's not going to be a candidate. Because bad candidates are going to win, it looks like. It's not going to be about, you know, Dobbs, because Dobbs was a sugar high. It's fundamentals, which means every single cent that was spent on this election was unnecessary. I mean, as I say, if you never spent a, a cent on the election, chances are the results tonight or whenever we get all the results will be pretty much the same as they would have been with all of this spending. So um, that's the... In the end, we will, we've been spending a year talking about the atmosphere and this and the policies. And the policies are important because the policies are why Democrats are unpopular. Policies and the results. But I don't. It's, it's very likely that nothing that has happened in this election has mattered. I mean, conceivably, if John Fetterman loses in Pennsylvania... It will matter that he was the candidate because he had a he had a catastrophic health event that is will probably be the reason that uh, he can't prevail while the Republican the candidate for governor the Democratic candidate for governor will win very easily. But aside from that, and that's not connected to spending. No, it's not connected to anything. I mean, that's just but but that's random. I mean, that's that's like the effect of randomness, like, you know, a, a, a Republican candidate could have been the one, you know, in a in a state where he could have won. Like if Ted Budd in North Carolina had a stroke in a relatively close race, maybe Sherry Beasley could have could have outdistanced him like that. That could happen to anybody at any time. Right. That's the whole that's the whole point of it. Yeah, can, can I, can say I add... something, though, on the on the Fetterman thing? It wasn't just that he had that performance and, and your podcast is classic. The night, the day after, I want to say it was the like 
fog machine for two or three months before from Democratic friendly reporters, the Rebecca Traster feature in New York magazine. And then it was the hectoring. You're an ableist if you're going to hold this against Fetterman, which is I just think that like common sense people would look at that and say, what are you talking about? He can't be a senator. Stop telling me that I'm the bad guy. You know what I mean? It's it's that's the that's my only caveat, which is that the 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 kind of incestuous relationship between the pro-democratic party press and the party in this election cycle. I I don't know, maybe it had an effect on the margins, but it certainly stood out for me on the Fetterman uh, Oz debate issue. Well, and there's another that's actually it's an important point, because I think one of the things that's been interesting to see all this, you know, democracy in peril, election deniers, et cetera, et cetera, all these all these sort of the Democratic hyperventilations about this. They're not actually looking a little further back and asking why people mistrust elections, why people mistrust the stories they're told in the media about elected officials. And I mean, this goes actually to a lot of the work you've written uh, about in commentary, Eli, because it's I mean, I've talked to moderate Republicans who still remain fairly radicalized after all the Russiagate stuff. Yeah. So like we were told we were sold a bill of goods and we believed it because we're good citizens who are very concerned about our democracy, wanted to thrive and voted for a guy if he turns out to have been a Russian agent. That's terrible. And they 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 really still feel the sting of that narrative. And I don't think that that's being calculated by all the people, you know, sort of throwing their hands up in the air about democracy. The mistrust is a lot broader than I think uh, we're, uh, Democrats are taking uh, consideration of here. And, and and it's again, that's a long term problem. There are solutions to it, but it doesn't help, as you say, like in the in the Fetterman case, where those those narrative, the, the sort of you can't uh, acknowledge what's right in front of your own eyes here about what is true and untrue. That has to stop if people are actually going to trust some of this stuff. And I think we're going to see a lot of election denial as an election. You know, we, we're already seeing it with with you know, in Pennsylvania, the Fetterman campaign's already saying, well, we know we're going to sue to get all these undated ballots counted. I mean, there's all kinds of hijinks going I mean, on. And it right also, now. like, I'm not equating Stacey Abrams to Donald Trump because when you're the sitting right. president right. and you deny totally the election, yes. it is different. And it's important to say that what Donald Trump did is much worse. Yes. But it's also kind of, the, it's 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 basically the same sort of thing. I don't, there are it's things a variation on a theme. About, <laughs> it's variations on the same theme. I don't trust this uh, the, the the way this election was conducted for it to be on the level. And, you know, I mean, Trump is Trump's theories are bizarre and lunatic. And Stacey Abrams has the advantage of kind of of talking about something that is not true today, but was true 50 years ago. You know what I mean? Like she has she's playing on a on a on a historical theme that is real, although just not true today as as a, as the as the court case a month ago showed. Um, where where look, her organization right. lost, but I mean, look, it's the same kind of thing. It's like I just don't trust this to be a fair election. But the, but 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 it's all emotional and personal. That that's what's interesting about this. Like in the end, it's people like you know, they're putting themselves a hundred percent on the line. Their personalities, their yeah, their 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 reputations, um, the way people look at them. You know, uh, being being pre presenting yourself to the electorate for rejection or acceptance is a very high stakes thing psychically, and um and it's like real competitors in sports. Um, you have two different kinds of competitors. You have the ones who are have such a, a firmly honed sense of self that they lose something and they're like, okay, I didn't have a good day, or you know, he really he really ran a good, you know, he he. 
he outdid me or, you know, we boxed and he uh, he knocked me out and I congratulate him or something like that. And then the people whose emotions are so jangled and rattled and and they've been on a roller coaster because every time they get a good poll or something, they're like, I'm going to be the governor and, you know, then, then I'll be president and all this. And then it doesn't happen. They fall short. Something happens and they can't get out of it. Like they can't say, all right, you know what? I lost because everything got tangled up with everything else. But see, this is actually why we have external rules, right? This is why people don't make these decisions, why we have umpires, why there are laws governing how election counts are done and 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 various fail-safes that have been put into place in all of these states to make sure that there are you know, trip wires and moments at which right. some terrible injustice or error that was done can be answered and addressed. But um, what's new about what Stacey Abrams did and then what Trump did, and again, I, I agree that Trump is much worse, is that um, when they say systemically uh, right. that the system is unfair, then no tripwire matters because if the system is rigged, the system is rigged down to the efforts to correct for the system's mistakes. You know, the whole thing is rotten at the core. And I dug up an interview with Stacey Abrams from like a couple months ago where she was saying that Kemp and Raffelsberger were as much of a threat to democracy as Trump, but they were even more of a threat maybe because they weren't as loud about it. And I'm like gobsmacked. I'm like, are you kidding? Brian Kemp is the only person in this country right now who's credible on the subject of election integrity yeah. because he managed to actually like stand up to the leader of his own party and the president of the United States. Um, but she's yeah. she's putting out that line and nobody on MSNBC will say, wait a second, what are you talking about? That's crazy. You know, John, that y y your point, I think, is really important because yeah. um, this this repeated message that the American uh, that American democracy is itself so rickety, so fragile that um, it can be like, you know, blown down uh, 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 by by, you know, a, a loud mouth and a mob. Um, itself erodes faith um, in in democracy. Um, it, it, it weakens the system itself because one of the actual miracles about the system is are the checks and balances and the and the reinforcements and and everything that we have going for it to keep it in place that makes us the longest running democracy. The idea that, well, all that can really just be like, you know, flicked away uh, at any given moment makes it kind of think that it makes makes people think that we have a much weaker system than we do. I mean, and, and I can I, can I the, add on? I'm sorry. Just go ahead. to strengthen your point, we have survived with horrendous cheating and horrendous rigging of elections. Lyndon Johnson would not have been president or had a national political career if he hadn't cheated in the 1948 election. Robert Caro's, like, I think, third volume that lays it all out Second brilliantly. Volume. Yeah. And Kate it's Stevenson. like. Kate what? Stevenson, the man that yeah. Johnson stole the 1948 election from. Yeah, and it was like he won by, and he called himself Landside Lind Linden. Wouldn't it have been great if the guy named Cake Stevenson had been in the Senate? Yeah. Um, you know, Nixon probably was cheated out of the 1960 election because Joe Kennedy had friends in the mafia who 
rigged the vote in Chicago and West Virginia. And Nixon probably knew it and decided not to contest it because it would be too damaging. But we have survived things like this before. And everybody's acting like it's never happened before. Of course it has. I mean, it's like, you know, we have a, a rich history in this country. I mean, I think also we we find ourselves... No, you you want I want to, want to get to you actually because you <laughs> have this idea that you wanted to talk about. Uh, we were talking about procriminations, and then we got all, because I wanted to you to introduce the notion of the pre-absolution. Yeah, well, I'm gonna just divulge everything I'm writing for the blog later. So, apologies, listeners, if you come across this blog post, you've already heard it. <laughs> but yes, we saw the pre-criminations over the course of the last week. Elise Slotkins, our leadership is too old. Uh, James Carville, he talked about abortion too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically laying at the feet of the White House for the most part. Um, and the White House, typically, as, as it is, slow to respond, is just now getting its shoes on, but they're crafting a whole lot of competing narratives to explain away why it's not their fault. Yesterday, we talked a little bit about how it's not really a wave according to political playbook, uh, unless Joe Biden suffers a fate similar to what Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump su suffered, which would mean a 40-seat loss. Only then is it a wave. But all of those presidents were starting, their parties were starting from a place of having over 200 seats in the House to begin with, or less than 200 seats in the House to begin with. Now, Republicans are starting from 212, so they're starting from a higher baseline. So these comparisons don't really make a whole lot of sense. They only serve to advance the Biden presidency's efforts to absolve itself from any blame. And we got this from Politico Playbook today, trying out another one, saying aides to the president are saying, well... All, you know, all these candidates aren't really rebuking Barack Obama or uh, Joe Biden. They're running on his agenda. They're not running away from his agenda. They're they're running on the president's uh, legislative priorities. And so you can't blame Joe Biden for that unless or yes. So so the Congress is is unified behind the president unless they're not because we got this from Puck yesterday or two days ago. Puck's newsletter via Tara Palmieri who said that the White House is toying with the idea of blaming Congress for this, specifically the, quote, camera-mugging, foot-dragging moderates like Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, who just wouldn't support his FDR-ish $3.5 trillion Build Back Better bill. So it's not Joe Biden's fault because it's Congress's fault, except it's not Congress's fault because they're supporting Joe Biden, and Republicans are not going to do as well as they expect them to do, even though the math doesn't make a whole lot of sense there. So they're really just throwing everything against the wall in the effort to absolve this presidency of any blame for what's about to befall them. Now, clearly, none of this is going to work, in part because they haven't even just settled on a coherent narrative, so they're just trying to see what see what will get them any traction. But they are intending to try to absolve the president of this. And we got this other piece today. I forget where I read it, but it was Ron Klain is just too entrenched in this administration, along with others, to be extricated. So there's not going to be any uh, no one's going to fall on their swords as a result of this. The Biden administration intends to dig in. We've gotten no indication uh, that there's any appetite for abdication in this White House from the president. I think they're just going to try to weather the storm. Okay, I, I need to quote now um, because we're, we're doing all of this uh, pu pu Punchbowl News and other Washington newsletter business um, uh, has has its morning take, which is, look, Biden did all this amazing stuff with a 50-50 Congress and a 50-50 Senate, and, but they just haven't come up with a way to sell it to the American people. 
And the answer is no, that it's not about selling. Uh, the results, the proof of the pudding is in the eating and people's uh, purchasing power is eroding and there's 8% inflation. Uh, and uh, and in some ways, inflation is twice that, depending on what it is that you want to do with your money. Um, so uh, that's an interesting, it's it's an interesting form of pre-absolution, even though it is, the, they couldn't come up with, they couldn't come up with something. But yesterday, I'm trying to find it, I'm sorry, uh, there was a tweet from the White House that was so astoundingly tone deaf that it reminds you in just one place what what political incompetence and tone deafness is two things yesterday first as i try to find this uh kathy hochel running for governor of new york and she'll probably pull it out tonight that's what you know that seems to be the conventional wisdom but the race was way closer than you're seeing fewer before. lawn signs john yeah, thank you very much for my no i i just don't know i mean like i all i see is people saying uh you know like uh he didn't uh, do enough right but yesterday she said that um lee zeldin the republican candidate was hyper was it hyperactive or hyperventilating hyperventilating about crime and that, in fact, it's more dangerous to live in a red state than in a blue state. Look at the stats. Now, I don't want to go into this. Those stats are ridiculous. It's embarrassing that anybody should be saying this. Many people have been saying it in the last week. Lee Zeldin, aside from everything else, and a New York City that is significantly less safe than it was three years ago, and significantly less safe now than it was actually nine months ago, but whatever, uh, Lee Zeldin himself had gunfire outside his right. house while his twin daughters were doing their homework on a Saturday afternoon. He's allowed to hyperventilate against crime. Like, you don't diss that. That You don't diss the public's feeling that crime is out of control. That's insane. And I don't really understand why she doesn't know that. Maybe she'll prevail, but, uh, you know, talk about something where you need to find something to say on a subject to get yourself out of it. That was number one. And then later Wait, in the, the day, but you got to go. The video of that is just too fun. If you haven't seen the video, you got to watch it. Just you can watch it with the sound off. She's flanked by Gerald Nadler, who, who when she, when she steps when she steps on this rake, you can just see his just the blood leave his face knowing that yeah. she, he just made a terrible mistake. And then Randy Weingarten just sort of snuggles into the to the to the group and gets her face in front of the camera. You didn't even know she was there. Why, the way, why are Democrats still <laughs> campaigning with this woman? I don't know. I don't well, anyway, know. But she has to, to make her, her presence she's known. She's like a bad trying penny. to pull her bacon yeah. out of the, they're literally trying to pull her bacon out of the fire. That, by the way, that took place at the 96th Street subway station, which is 10 blocks from my house. The Express, the, the, uh, the 7th Avenue IRT Express. And what's interesting about that picture and the fact that it's there is that in the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s, that very spot was the epicenter of what led to the Giuliani takeover of New York City. Because there was a guy, there was a homeless guy who lived on that corner. His name was Larry Hogue, and he was known as the Madman of 96th Street. And he would punch people, he would walk around throwing things, he would throw garbage cans into the middle of the street. 60 Minutes did a 20-minute piece 
on 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 the on Larry Hogue, the madman of 96th Street. She's literally standing in the very spot that helped turn the city Republican for this in this weird way and saying there's no crime. Like, you know, this is this is an irony that isn't lost on me, but probably lost on most people because it was a long time ago. And most people who live in New York weren't alive then. But that's just a, a little factoid. Then later, like three hours later or something, Biden's Twitter account tweets this. I don't know who runs Biden's Twitter account. I don't, maybe it's Hunter off his laptop. Quote, you don't get to accept hundreds of thousands of dollars in pandemic loans and then attack my administration for helping working folks get some relief. The president of the United States is saying that you person out there don't get to criticize his administration if you if your company took pandemic loans because the government forced you to shut down and people right. had to stay at the home pandemic the loans just... <laughs> that were given were given as a form of sub subsidy for unemployment insurance rather than you laying someone off and then they have to go into the unemployment system the idea was we'll give you money you pay your employees so that you don't have to fire them. And then as things lighten up and you prove that all that money went to your employees, we will forgive them. He had nothing to do with that. That happened before he was yeah, president. Was the that CARES Act, in... which was passed in 2020. Yeah. That was Democracy's the... on the ballot. Don't you dare criticize my administration for these subsidies. I mean, because democracy's mean, again, on the ballot. Forget, forget, forget. We don't even have to talk about like what an outrageous and horrible thing that this is to say in policy, whatever. What the hell is he doing? What the hell are they doing? Attacking tens of millions of small businesses that took PPA loans. Are they this was out of his their line, freaking minds? This was his line from the start. Do you remember when when they first announced the the uh, the, the the tuition loans? Yeah, yeah the, the, the the student loans, and uh, he took one question as he was walking away about it. Uh, uh, is this fair? And he's and he said, you know, testily, as he always does, ask the businesses that took the took the pandemic loans if that's if it's fair and 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 marched out. So he is settled on this logic, um, which leads me to believe whoever's doing his his tweeting is is shockingly close to him. Right. OK, so which should it's not Dr. be the Jill. case. <laughs> OK, so let's just. Table for a minute. The idea that. Joe Biden will run again for president because he is not I'm now I'm staking my marker here before the election results he will not be the democratic nominee for president in 2024 his not only are his political skills now nil assuming that he one one only one of the chambers has to fall for the white house's agenda to be you know completely compromised uh, so he's politically inelegant and not astute and making lots of mistakes. The policies are bad. Um, and if he's and he's both an idiot and senile. 
and he's not going to be the nominee in 94. I mean, I don't know if he's senile. He has cognitive challenges. But the, the Fight Club rule was finally broken. They are talking about Fight Club now. Three newspapers have been fact-checking him in just recent weeks, which is unheard of because they did not do that before. They did not take him to task for misstatements that were confusing and, you know, had to be walked elaborately walked back. The new walkbacks from the White House every time he opens his mouth are becoming like paragraphs long. It's not like one sentence clarification. It's an essay explaining what he really meant. But the dynamic, as I see it, is places like the New York Times writing stories that can now be told and very gently in the in the manner of a, of a retirement party speech trying to usher him off the stage. And Joe Biden very unequivocally, very assertively saying no doing. So guess what? Um, if there's going to be a confrontation around this, it's going to get more heated, and I'm sure it will. There will be much more direct appeals to Joe Biden to uh, step off the stage. But what's coming up behind him is going to scare everybody, and it's chaos. I have no, it, it is I, not, I is absolutely not, it, agree with you, but we can't, we are going to be spending, there was a little of this in 2019 and early 2020. We are going to be spending every minute from Wednesday until the convention seeing if he falls down the stairs of Air Mine. Force One. But, right. but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but no, no, no. Trump my, my is going to announce, is... Trump is going to announce yeah. in a week. And honestly, I really hope the American people hear me in saying this to hell with both of them, Biden and Trump, yeah, like sure. enough already. Enough my, with both my, of them. My, my only reservations are, of course, Joe Biden can't run again, but of course, nobody else can either. So we have this kind of, you know, immovable force thing. And the only contention I've always been making is that why Joe Biden will be on the ballot in 2024 is because too many people's jobs depend on it. The entire Obama administration apparatus. Which oh, they're is all in... running. They're all fleeing. I don't you see are them gonna fleeing. See, you, are, you don't see it today. Friday, half the cabinet will be gone. When I see Susan Rice gone, when I see Ron yeah. Klain gone. Oh, oh, I don't, oh, oh. I don't Susan see any Rice indication is that be they chairman. want to shuffle Susan off Rice is going to be the head of the Council on Foreign Relations. That will happen Monday. Ron Klain will be opening a policy shop on Tuesday. Gina Raimondo will become the White House chief of staff. By March, half the cabinet will have been will have will have walked away. And you're talking about third tier people in the White House and in the East Wing who are like, I love my job too much. You need to stay around. By the way, that that helps in politics like strong Thurmond was basically like a drooling vegetable and he kept getting reelected because his staff would say to him like what are we going to do now like no one likes us because you're you know we you have to keep running to keep us employed i mean this is a real thing in the senate but it's not going to work and and this is and as you say the retirement speech stuff at the uh you know uh, in the new york times starts turning into what um Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner in in, in a non two thousand year old man sketch that is the LMNOP ad agency sketch. Mel Brooks is an ad man on on you know Madison Avenue, and he says, you know, well, when you need someone fired, you know, you you start a vicious whispering campaign. And Carl Reiner says, you mean like you walk around, you know, like telling no no. You walk up to the guy and you whisper in his ear, get out of here by Tuesday or we'll break your teeth. <laughs> That's what's about to happen to Biden. Um, and I, I think and and the gloves are going to be off because it's too scary. I don't. And by the way. Anybody. I know he beat him once. 
But the idea of a generic Democrat running against Trump, when they do the numbers, a generic Democrat will beat Trump. If you say Democrat versus Kamala Trump. Kamala is not generic. No, but she's not. I'm saying the generic Democrat, not Kamala. Anyway, we need to transition here because our very own Eli Lake uh, on our commentary website right now, you can read the uh, special advanced version of Eli's December lead article in commentary on is the it is the summa and probably not the last one though but is the summa of the series of pieces he's been doing on the malfeasance within the justice department and at the fbi uh in relation to uh trump michael flynn carter page the fisa process the politicization of the uh, effort to get the president uh the corruption of the bureaucracy um and and all of that and so this this is the piece on can we save the fbi uh so um eli please uh give everybody a sense of uh it's a it's a well first of all john thank you so much for the great edit of it and your patience with me you were Uh, as always a great editor oh please please um what i tried to do in this piece is put the current FBI scandals that I've been writing about in some sort of historical context and in diving into the history of the post Hoover FBI. And by the way, it's kind of a perfect time 2022 to do it because it's been 50 years since Hoover died in office and Hoover was in office for 48 years. So it's like a century of, you know, we have half a century of Hoover and then half a century of post Hoover. And, you know, I, I lead it with this idea that the we tell ourselves a story about the FBI today, which is that there were all kinds of un- unthinkable and horrifying abuses of power under Hoover's FBI. And everybody knows about it. You know, it's known as Pro, the uh, poison pen letters to Martin Luther King. I mean, and you could go down the list is a lot. But there and were the reforms and blackmail, blackmail files like he blackmail kept, files literally yeah. kept blackmail files on everybody in Washington to protect his own job. And we don't know what he did with those files. We because we have by no the way, idea. his secretary was instructed to burn them. It's a true thing. And that, that there was there's a there's a clip. I mean, I couldn't get everything in this piece, but there's a famous clip with um, Bella Abzug, the great feminist uh, congresswoman from New York City, like grilling his former secretary like you did what? He died and then you took the files and then you burned them in the back. What? Like it was, you know, so these, this, this happened. Well, those but, files said that Bella Abzug was a Stalinist, which so, she was. Well, she, we I, didn't need, those, like, we didn't I need, wish I could have seen those files. We didn't need, we didn't need like Hoover's file to, to say that. That's true. Fair enough. Go ahead. Anyway. Um, but the point is, is that there By the were, way, she was literally a Stalinist. I'm not, I'm not, this is not, I'm not like slandering her. Like she was almost certainly a Stalinist. Go ahead. Um, the point is that in the 70s, we had something called the Church Committee, and then in the House, it was the Pike Committee. And these were painful, revelatory hearings about the CIA, the NSA, and the FBI. And that from that, we had a series of reforms, one of which is known as the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. It created a secret court where you have to get a warrant to um, spy on American citizens if you think they're a terrorist or a foreign agent. Um it created the permanent select committees on intelligence in the House and the Senate, which are supposed to do oversight and have access to classified information the rest of the Congress can't have. And, you know, for 50 years, more or less, we thought that this was these reforms had kind of brought the FBI in line. And to the credit of the FBI, it did have success 
especially in the 1980s against um, the uh, five families, the mafia. But then almost like once the 90s start, you know, we see a combination of abuses of power and incompetence and even a FISA scandal at the end of the 1990s, right before 9-11. And it had kind of culminated into this like long forgotten hearing about how do we restore public trust in the FBI that may may have had the the potential for a number of reasons. And you should read the piece because it's long, but may have had the potential to have another kind of reform moment, which was overdue. It's, rich. With... it's not long because I don't want to say long because that sounds yeah. boring. It's that, like you're right. It's a good point. Full of drama and twists and turns. Right. Thank you very much. So so there's a kind of moment where there could have been more reforms, but then 9-11 happens. And 9-11 is the worst thing in the world for the FBI for two reasons. One, Louis Free, who was the director, who had to resign abruptly because of the discovery of someone named Robert Hansen, who was probably even worse than Aldrich Jane, maybe the worst spy in American history. He had been an agent for the Soviet Union and later Russia for 20 years. And he was a senior counterintelligence agent. He at one point led a mole hunt to find himself. And it was such an embarrassment that Louis Free had to resign, and he resigned abruptly. And that gave the George W. Bush administration a couple months to find a replacement. They settle on Robert Mueller, and he does not get into the office, into the job until, I think, about two weeks before 9-11. So you can't blame 9-11 on the new director. And in addition to that... They find out in the oversight after 9-11 that the FBI had a guy named Zacharias Massawi arrested, the 20th hijacker, and they did not get a FISA warrant to go through his electronic possessions. And the, 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 the sort of understanding was at that point, there were way too many restrictions on this process to use electronic surveillance. And that was the problem. So the FBI got enormous new powers to try to prevent acts of terrorism. They eliminated what's known as the wall between law enforcement and intelligence. Uh, so they got a lot more power and they didn't really face any serious scrutiny because the director of the FBI was someone you couldn't really blame. And so there was no reform and the FBI kept going. And as a result, you know, you kind of had this standard where the behavior of FBI agents, uh, especially when it came to the foreign intelligence surveillance act and and the and the process for obtaining these warrants it was a joke um they created new procedures to try to verify the information in these applications and we found out after the carter page um study from the inspector general that that this process known as the woods procedure is never followed and nobody is ever punished for it and we see the same thing really in what's called russiagate i mean there's only one guy who's really paying any kind of price for this and his name is kevin kleinsmith he's a lawyer uh, he didn't get any jail time. He was probation. And he just got his law license restored last year uh, by the D.C. bar. And meanwhile, people like Jim Comey or Peter Strzok, they don't have jobs in the FBI anymore, but they have sinecures at great universities and they have jobs with you know cable networks. So we have not had this process of reform where we occasionally have to get rid of bad apples in order to set a precedent so that we expect FBI people to follow the rules and that's why I think we are in this particular state. And it's not just, and, I, and then I'll stop monologuing, it's not just Russiagate. It's not just a specific issue about the investigation into Donald Trump's campaign in Russia, which itself is a scandal and I've written a lot about. It's all kinds of things. Look at this you know, supposed plot against Gretchen Whitmer, which 
I remember when we were getting all those stories, John was, you know, texting me and we were texting back and forth like, we can't believe it. Who who are these Keystone cops? It turns out that there probably wouldn't have been any plot at all against her if it had not been for FBI agents and informants incepting one. And so you see a sort of series of things and that's where the problem is. And there needs to be serious reform. Uh, You know, people like Comey need to be, you know, have suffer reputational costs and, that and and we in in or you know in order to have a, a new FBI that is capable of kind of doing its job and not abusing its authority. Um, I mean, I just want to point out a couple of things here, uh, which is that in the course of this piece, which really does begin in '72, it's almost right. like a weird series of slapstick cliffhangers in which the FBI <laughs> is on the verge of systemic change at the hands of Congress. And and when you go through the history, particularly in the '90s, like you sort of forget. I, we don't even go into that much detail about it, but Waco, Ruby Ridge, followed by the uh, slandering of Richard Jewell, um, when Holy happened, uh, when Holy the 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 spy, right. uh, then leading up to Hanson. That's all in like a ten year period. This is an agency that is not only incompetent but actively deleterious too as we now know for 30 years to um, maintaining the reputation of law enforcement as it should be understood by the American people, particularly when it comes to Waco and Ruby Ridge in which the, in in the Waco case in which the FBI and a tragic series of miscalculations essentially led to, you know, the deaths of scores of people in this, you know, crazy person's, uh, you know, hideaway. And then this, uh, you know this 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 event at this um, you know I don't know what you would call it uh, uh, splinter groups uh, compound in 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 Oregon. Then you have the destruction of this guy's life with the false claim that he was responsible for the bombing at the at the Atlanta Olympics, uh, and then they find the guy who did it in the woods six years later. Right. After after Richard Jewell had not only settled with them and with news organizations. Uh, but then had died, like had died a broken man. It was, uh, it was right died. before he died, right? But yeah. Right before he died. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then if you even go further after Hansen and then some of then you had the insane pers- uh, persecution of Stephen Hatfill. That's right. Um, the, on a, the anthrax a, issue. A scientist right. whom they came up with this cockamamie theory that he had swum to the bottom of a lake in outside Frederick, Maryland and had and had milled um anthrax and then had put it in envelopes and sent it out in an underwater lab that he had somehow reached with us with his you know as a scuba dot i mean it was they drained the lake they right. drained an entire lake to prove that he had done this and when they did it it was like geraldo opening the capone vault like there was nothing there and yet every time they were on the verge of actually coming under congressional scrutiny to the extent that uh, laws would be passed. And there were a couple in the seventies, then some bizarre thing would happen that would pull them out right. of it. So I think now I should go to, I, you know, I don't want to like blow the surprise ending, but I, I think what's interesting about the piece and maybe we won't blow the ending is you propose reforms to save the FBI that strike me, unlike a lot of such documents, unlike a lot of such ideas which are pie in the sky, you know, they need to appoint to this, and then there should be a committee to do that, and we should... You actually have a very simple, 
but very uh, plain solution to the problem, which involves uh, re reestablishing in some fashion the wall between domestic and, and absolutely. And by the way, it's not just me. Yeah. Andy McCarthy, who was in another iteration in his career, an advocate for demolishing the wall. Right. Has now come around to this view and, and his right. piece came anyway, out before. So people should yeah. read the piece so you know what yeah. exactly it is that's going on. But it's fair to say that there's a model for it elsewhere in Western democracies. It's extant. We know it from from popular culture, as you'll read. And so I would say just well, one I, more thing. And that's yeah. a, and this is like more of a I mean, we can't reform the press. The press is going to do what it can. But I think we should get rid of what I call the kind of Watergate precedent where it's you know the ultimate scoop to talk to write about ongoing investigations because when you write about an ongoing investigation oftentimes what you're doing is you are kind of airing allegations against a public figure that you yourself do not have the goods to back up so you're saying it is being investigated that is what happened under watergate um and we now know the deputy director mark felt uh at the time was you know deep throat he was the source for the washington post and we can justify Watergate because the Nixon administration was corrupt and they were trying to shut down the Watergate investigation of the FBI. Um, but it's a really bad precedent, I think. And I think that and we've felt had... himself just tell people what happened to felt four years well, after. Watergate. Right. Well, felt himself is one of he's he and uh, his one of his deputies are the only time two senior FBI officials have actually been um, not just indicted, but convicted by a jury for violating the civil rights of, if you can believe it, the friends and family of the Weather Underground and Weather Underground. Because what he did is he authorized with no authority um, the surveillance of the friends, neighbors, and families of Weather Underground uh, terrorists. And I would just say, this is one of these ironies, is that we just saw Chesa Bodine recalled in uh, San Francisco. And... Had who, was son, Bo- who was the son of two weather underground terrorists. Right, who, by the way, the biological son of of two weather underground terrorists who raised, who, ra- well, he went, he went, who, who went to jail, but then he was raised by Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers. And two Bernadine other, Dorn, yeah. right, they, 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 they raised him as adopted parents, sort of, yeah. and had felt not violated their civil rights Ayers and Dorn would not have become college professors. They would have probably been in jail for the rest of their life where they belonged. And Chesa Bodine probably wouldn't have gone to Yale Law School, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can sort of spin it out. But my point is, is that the re- Mark Felt's abuse of the civil rights of Weather Underground is the reason why Ayers and Dorns had second acts in their life and got to become college professors uh, instead of, you know, federal inmates. I just he want was, to press uh, he was briefly by Nixon by, by by Reagan by the way he was yeah felt was part was pardoned and he you but you so you could say he didn't really you know and and the judge didn't even send give him jail time and everything like that but um you know felt is by no means uh you know in my view the hero that uh you know he's been portrayed as recently yeah. I don't want to be hard nosed about this but Eli I want to press you a little bit on yeah. your solution here which is to reestablish the wall remove from the FBI's capacity domestic surveillance insofar as it's possible and shuttle all that very necessary work, counterterrorism work, yep. to a brand new agency that would be responsible for spying on Americans. Uh, you blew it. You blew the surprise ending. Well, That's fine. I'm sorry. Blew, but... I, was, I wanted people to... It's okay. Go ahead. Well, because I kind of want to explore why... how that happens. <laughs> okay. 
because there's zero political appetite for such a thing on the no, right. I'm not sure that's true. No, I don't know that's You're true saying either. there isn't, but but the Republicans are very angry at the FBI. To the degree that they would establish a brand new agency along the lines of MI5 designed to do exactly what they think the agency has been doing uh, with more legal auspice that justifies it. So I find not more legal auspice. The problem is so if I can demonstrate the problem, we found out in one of the Durham trials that when the lawyer for the Hillary campaign, Michael Sussman, brings over this bogus white paper that claimed the servers from the Trump organization were in communication with the Alpha Bank. And, you know, this is taken to the general counsel for the bureau, and then it goes finally to the line agents who are going to do the investigation. They take one look at the data, and they said, there isn't a cybercrime here. This is bogus. I don't know what to do with it. And the word back from the seventh floor is, well, then make it a counterintelligence investigation. So keep it open. If you can't do the criminal, that's fine. Just make it a counterintelligence investigation. Okay, I don't want that anymore. I want the FBI to do law enforcement. And there's a way you do law enforcement where you investigate in such a way that you expect at some point for your work to be checked in court in a adversarial process. And it's very different than doing intelligence, which is aimed at preventing espionage and terrorism. And that organization that is doing that should be overseen 100% by, you know, within the executive branch, but also Congress, if we can get its act together. Right. So, the so I'm not saying pop- it should, it should, it's, it's a free hand, but when you have it under the same roof like that, it is very corrupting. And I think it, 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 it and I think it creates a culture of liars, which is what we've seen with the FBI on all kinds of things. We find out from the the mid-level to the the high level, they all lie. Merits of the policy entirely aside, the merits are demonstrable. The the political will to do something like that, I can't imagine exists. Let's assume it does. Because the the Trump administration and the, the conservative movement has spent the last two or three years complaining about the degree to which unelected authorities in government are spying on us. And now yeah, we're going to create so another agency do. designed to do so, just that. So let's assume, no. okay, so let's assume that there's that there's okay. So then there's political will. We'll just imagine political will exists on the right for such a thing. And then how do Democrats react to it? Again, either way, you're creating a, the domestic spying agency that the other side is going to perceive to be aimed directly at their head. That's possible, but the, the domestic spying and then if agency that if the political exists. will does not exist, then this is a recipe for hopelessness because there's no other reform that would that would restore some kind of integrity to this institution. But you're literally talking about a task that already exists within the FBI. And the problem is that uh, it's a hydra-headed agency that does two things that shouldn't be done together. And so a very simple, practical solution is to divide the tasks. It's, It's not complicated. It's just that the power accreted at the FBI, and I'm not saying that there may or may not be political will, and you're like looking at it and saying, oh, they want to create a new domestic agency to spy. The idea is if you isolate these tasks, um, you can do better oversight of both of them. Democrats want better oversight of law of, of domestic law enforcement. Republicans want greater oversight of people who are going to run around saying that they're Soviet, they're Russian spies. I I don't know whether there's a will for it or not, because we don't know what the Republicans are going to do when they have power. 
It's certainly but better than like let's abolish the things. FBI, which is like a which which yeah. we can't do. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, not a serious thing either. Look, also, it's been 20 years since 9-11, and the entire federal government was reorganized after 9-11. The Homeland Security Department was created. Agencies were put there, this and that. The wall was broken down between. It is it is um, perfectly sensible as a matter of congressional action, sensible, to say, okay, it's been two decades some things we got right, some things we got wrong. Now we can sort of let, let's let's do some fixing. Like that's a modest. It's not a revolutionary solution. It's a relatively modest solution. Like 1947, we organized the government in one way. We seem to have you know created a condition in which we couldn't actively or properly deal with the terrorist threat that emerged in 2001. We needed to reorganize the government. It's now been two decades. How are we doing? Are there things we need to fix? And Republicans do want to fix things, right? They want to. They want to start having. They want to rewrite the, um, you know, the AUMA. Uh, you know, in terms of, I guess now we're out of Afghanistan, so you don't really have to rewrite that one. But I mean, they want to. They want to do things that bring the bring the executive branch under greater congressional oversight. It's easier to do oversight of these independent agencies than it is to have the FBI glommed together in one oversight bin. That's that's what I would say. But maybe And I more. and I fear that there's going to be at least some I mean we know we know some of them. There's some Republicans who think we can just pretend that, you know, crime and espionage and terrorism don't exist and get rid of the FBI. Well that's a terrible idea. And so I mean, by the way, you could even say that what's gone on in the in the last year yeah. Well, it's going to make that a very hard pull for them because as Noah keeps saying, we talk about crime and the Republicans ran on yeah, crime. That's right. And there isn't much that Republicans can do on crime at the federal level, but hobbling the FBI is certainly not a good look. Right. What you're saying is you want to deal with crime, even if you don't like the FBI. Like that's not the optics there are going to be very bad. It's one of the few things that the federal government does do in crime. That's right. That's right. And it's you can address all the things that make myself and other Republicans and other, you know, conservatives or civil libertarians concerned, like whether it's, you know, the FBI's role in flagging disinformation on social media, which I think is really dangerous precedent. You can address all that in this context. But I think that a fundamental thing is that it's really difficult to have um, an a, a sort of government bureaucracy that is both a spy agency, which deals in in some ways you know violating elements of the law and law enforcement and it's just good to separate them yeah no this is the ultimate stay in your own lane <coughs> anyway we'll, we'll see but hey listen like i said i am convinced of the policies i think we're all underestimating the extent to which persecution complex drives our politics and everybody's going to say this is an agency designed to persecute me fair you know, enough i think you're, by the way you're that right that, that's true you're you're to raise fair enough the concerns about the politics is absolutely there. But listen, what else is I mean, commentary's sort of role is to think through these things and sort of say, all right, well, here's a path that maybe we can I, use. It's, it's to possible in a po in a very a much more post populist Republican Party. I can but see. But if that like were the case, fire. then there's nothing to be done. Then, then that's that's yeah. my point, And I said it before is that that's yeah. a recipe for hopelessness. Right. But if that's the, if we have to surmount that summit in order to get to something resembling constitutional federal law enforcement, then I'm just in profound despair. 
Okay, but I just, you know, I just would say though that that this and and please read Andy McCarthy's piece for a National Review, which I mean he he, he read Eli's same. first. Yeah, read mine first. But okay, yeah, Andy and 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 myself, we are not like never Trump squishes. We have been hammering the FBI. I mean, you know, like yeah. Trumpers like my FBI pieces for commentary. They tweet them and everything like that. So it's not like. The messenger here is coming from like, you know, this is some wonky thing. And that's, you know, so, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe we can. And and, and what I was trying to do is just say, all right, this is an idea of maybe how to fix this without just complaining about it all the time. I mean, I do think I really do think that this is a more practical solution than Noah, you think, because Republicans are going to have to do something. So there are two ways of handling this, one of which is you can have hearings and you just have congressmen sitting there yelling at FBI agents and the FBI leadership and, you know, scolding them and throwing things at them and, you know, saying you're, you're, you're under oath, you're under oath, Mr. So-and-so, you know, we're, you know, the penalty for perjury and stuff like that. Or they can actually say, okay, we're going to sit down and we're going to, you know, we want to show that we, we, we have, they also, they have to do things when they come into power. And by the way, challenge Biden, they need to send Biden provocative legislation that puts him on the spot that's also a very important now they may not do it i'm going to write a piece for the january commentary on the tragic history of what happens when republicans take over congress of which you know has, has not been a pretty picture uh, for the most part um and and what they need to avoid it but they can't do nothing and the classic thing they did in 2011 when they came into control the house was that they did nothing they did anti things right they did shutting down the government and not doing the debt ceiling and stuff and they but they didn't have anything that they wanted to do the one thing that the republicans wanted to do in 2013 was the gang of eight immigration reform and then of course half the party revolted against that and that was the end of the gang of eight immigration reform that was the one positive effort uh that the that the caucus even thought to advance. So um this is a very weird moment that they're in and they have to they have to do things. They can't just not do things. And so this may be a thing that they can do that that is fingers crossed. Yeah. I mean because you know like there's going to be a lot more oversight. There's going to be a, or there's going to be more oversight and skepticism about, you know, sort of the blank check on Ukraine, for example. Like there's going to be there's going to be armed services committee and you know senate whatever the foreign relations whatever they're gonna they're gonna the defense committees and stuff like that looking into how the spending is going how it's being you all of that and on the one hand that unnerves me because i'm worried that it's a trigger for isolationism on the other hand that's what congress is supposed to do <laughs> that's actually what its constitutional responsibility is it, it authorizes the spending of money and then it's supposed to oversee the spending of the money like they should do that instead of like going out and you Which know is why there's a whole lot of oversight baked into every one of these bills that provides for Ukraine support. It's a mis it's a misapprehension that there's no oversight associated with this. Maybe an IG is something that we could consider, but it's not as well. I mean, there's no there's oversight. been no oversight so far. I mean, in other words, there may be built in oversight, so that will actually yeah. give them will give them a ha hand to play in January. Like nobody nobody wants to do anything because. Everyone is rah-rah supportive of the war effort and wants Biden to succeed and that Democrats are in charge. I'm just saying there are things that they're going to do and they and they should do and they need to do. And uh, and so this is a practical proposal for them to do something that's both big and sensible 
and and by the way, doesn't really run afoul, I don't think, except for the way you characterize it, of either conservative or liberal concerns. The idea here would be for liberals, though liberals are no longer civil libertarians, from what I can tell, since they're just all they want to do is suppress everybody's speech. You could say this agency is important because it it removes the possibility of this new agency actually having enforcement powers. It observes, it watches, it collects information and then makes maybe, you know, makes a case or something like that. But it's not about the case. It's about it's about the knowledge that would lead whatever. And then, you know, so so well, the idea uh, starts with Eli and there's a lot of groundwork associated with it. We could dispel a lot of the rumors that I see that will just surround it, like the idea that there's no oversight for Ukraine aid, which there is. But has become conventional wisdom on the right. Has there been a single hearing on Ukraine? No, this isn't. I mean, yeah, no, it's 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 at it's at the staff level where I mean there will be over there will be oversight hearings, big public displays, spectacles. But no, there haven't been big spectacles. It's yeah, at the staff legislation level, at the, at the staff level. level. <laughs> and then we could say there's no oversight over everything. The staff that's of the House occurred. Armed Services Committee has oversight over sixty billion dollars of spending in Ukraine. Like some, you know, 23-year-old graduate of Texas A&M is like overseeing, you know, the I mean, I can see the exact same arguments being leveraged against the domestic spy agency. True or not? That, that's a non sequitur, I'm afraid, because you're talking about your... I don't understand par- what you're Yeah, saying. paranoia. No, paranoia is, is a profound force in our politics. I'd How rather have the Texas A&M staffer overseeing some of this than some of the people we have in charge first, now, but that's just the me. First, <laughs> the first 500 names in the Boston phone book, right? Was it 5,000 or 500 names? Then the, then the staff of Harvard the Law Buckley School. Quote, that, was, yeah. that was the Buckley quote, right? Anyway, everybody go read Eli's article, which Thank is a very you. long name that I came up with and now I can't remember because I'm too old. It is, can the FBI be saved from itself and can we be saved from the FBI? Yes. It is at commentary.org. It's right there at the top of the page. Read it, be enlightened and entertained and thrilled and see if you agree with me or with Noah uh, about this, uh, the the possibilities of, 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 the, of the reforms that Eli is proposing. Uh, we will be back tomorrow morning uh, in the wake of what we're going to learn tonight. And uh, that should be fun. It's going to be a good episode. I'm not going to be here, but it's going to be, I can tell it's going to be great. (laughs) Okay. Looking forward to it. Okay. Noah's, by the way, already pre-criminating on the, on the Republican House and Senate. Like you've been for the last week, you've been like, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be, I don't even know why they want it. I don't even know why. Keeping the brand of crushing morosity healthy. Yeah. Yeah, It's just (laughs) psychological comfort blankets for myself. Okay. There you go. I do think it's funny though, because I'm, I'm with you in this sense, which is like looking back at the history, as I said, uh, you're on the, you know, they're on the verge of this potentially historic, you know, political shift. And then you look back at the historic political shifts previously. And it's like, Boy, you really screwed, really screwed that up, buddy. Well, the thing is, there are going to be new crises to deal with, mm-hmm. and that's going to that's reset right. the table entirely. Totally, and it, that that it's going to that's be true. how they deal with those, not that's the holdover true. issues. That's true. And you know, Chairman uh, House Ways and Means Chairman Marjorie Taylor Greene will be right there. There is no Ways and is there still a Ways and Means Committee, or did they rename them? There is. Okay, so. Uh, the House Ways and Means Committee, she's not going to chair the House Ways and Means Committee. 
but uh, she'll be this. She'll she'll have some. She'll have some kind of subcommittee chairmanship or two. <sighs> and Lauren put her on oversight. Apparently, there was new new reporting the other day that people are lobbying, <clears throat> lobbying McCarthy to put her on oversight, and he's receptive. Wow. Speaking well, of oversight, put her on ethics. Yeah. What? Yeah. Oversight. Ethics yeah. is a punishment. Matt Gates chairing ethics. That's like that's like Iran and Libya chairing the human rights committee well, that's you know, where you send members commission. when you want to punish them because i they know. have to police their fellow members that's right anyway all right eli lake anyway thank you uh commentary.org read eli's piece we'll be back tomorrow morning with actual results after like a year of just blathering about what's going to happen and uh, uh as we say on colney dre all vows are hereby count. Anything I said before now doesn't count. Hold me to nothing unless I was right. May you be inscribed in the Book of Congress. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. So for Abe, Christina, and Noah, I'm John Paul Horitz. Keep the candle burning.